Hello and welcome to Jetavanarama Buddhist Monastery. Welcome back to continue our journey on our quest as we explore the Buddha's guide to happiness. Our quest is to achieve a happiness that transcends all conditionality, something that is ours to keep forever, something that does not change like the weather, it does not come or go, it is not affected by any external influence, by others, other people, other things, the day of the week, whether it's exam time or relaxation time, whether it's your birthday or perhaps it's the passing away of one of your loved ones. We are aiming to achieve that kind of happiness. Now we know that despite all the efforts and all the other enterprises and endeavors that people all around the world make to achieve this level of this kind of happiness, it is certainly impossible. There is enough evidence from our history to learn that. Mankind has always strived for it, but they have almost always failed. I say almost always because it is not always they have failed. Our forefathers once knew these methods. They understood, they realized. The greatest teacher that the world has ever seen, the Supreme Buddha, once discovered this method, the way to achieve an unending happiness, fulfillment, contentment and bliss. However, it has not always been the prime focus of people all around the world. From time to time, people begin to seek this happiness. They begin to question, they begin to ponder the purpose, the meaning of their lives. And from time to time, these teachings resurface. It has always been with us. It has always been among us. But, as I said, it is not always the point of focus. And it is through that lack of focus that sometimes we forget to see and we fail to see the obvious. So, it is my hope and my fervent endeavor to share with you what I have learned and what I have realized with the help of my teachers about this unending, never-ending, unconditional happiness and the path to achieving that. Now, this sound like, this might sound like a tall order, it might even sound fanciful, but I assure you that is not the case. Should you take my word for it? <laughs> well, by now you know that that is not how I have asked you to verify these claims. If you have been along with us on this journey, you will know by now, if not anything else, that there is one thing that I chant like a mantra. And what is that? Indeed, the lab of life. You can only take these with an open mind. Of course, you can be receptive to them, but you don't have to accept them blindly. Please, take these words, these bits of advice, maybe ideas and concepts, principles. Take them away and apply them in your lab of life. In the lab of life, they will prove to you either to be true or false. Either way, provided you do that, I'm happy and I, I feel that I've done my job. So, today we have lots to get through because I have been building up to this point. We've been talking about wanting and how that is what we must begin to see as the true 
suffering. I propose to you that this is what the Buddha suggested was the first noble truth of suffering. And I think we've come to the point where we have started to ask this question, well, okay, Bhante, wanting is suffering, we can see that. But how do we stop it? Is it stoppable? Can something be done about it? We've always lived with it. It feels almost like so natural. It's part of being human, is it not? To want things. So we may have come to that point in our conversation. Before we continue that conversation then, let's take a moment to pay homage to the most magnificent one, the perfect one. He who is the most merciful one, our teacher, the Supreme Buddha. And once we've done that, we will continue our talk today. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa I'm quite pleased about the fact that we have some very inquisitive and very intelligent listeners. Some of you have been sending through your questions, having listened to these talks and having tried to analyze and contemplate them, where you have struggled trying to apply some of these concepts and trying to make sense of them, you have been ambitious enough to send them through as questions, either through our YouTube channel or perhaps through other means. Our team at the monastery, who keep an eye out for that and who manage our social media channels and so on, they have put these questions forward to me and have asked that I address as many of them as possible as we go along. And I'm more than happy to do that. Now, one of the questions that had come through, which was very interesting, goes something like this. So, it was something along the lines of, Bhante, you talk about pleasure as being something that is experienced, a feeling that is experienced, when the mind is relieved of vexation. So, vexation being an expectation or the feeling when you want something, that makes total sense. So, these are the words that, or it is my interpretation of the problem that was put forward. But what about when we experience pleasure without having expected something beforehand? What about then? How can you say that pleasure is relieved from vexation when there was no expectation or vexation for that prior to the experience? And I think in the question there was an example put through as well. And I can share with you a number of other examples as well. So I think in the question the example that was put, sent through was what about, for instance, when you get to listen to a piece of music, just off by chance. And you weren't expecting to listen to it. Let's just say you were going somewhere and you were passing a, um, a record bar and you hear them playing some music. And it sounds quite nice. Or let's just say there's a new song that has just been released a new album, a new song, and it's a brand new artist. It's their debut album. You've never heard them sing before. And it's, it's a new song. And you hear it and you go, wow, that is beautiful. What a lovely song that is. So how then can you explain this Bhante as being relief from vexation when I had absolutely no expectation 
to listen to that particular song. I had absolutely no vexation for that. Good question, isn't it? I can give you some of my own examples. How about, let's say you go home to your, or you go to visit your grandmother and she's baked something, she's made something, she's cooked something for you. It's a surprise. You'd never tried it before. It's a new recipe that she's just tried out and she offers it to you and you take a bite of that and you think to yourself, oh my God, that is the most delicious thing that I've ever tasted. So now, when you apply the principle in the lab of life, you come across this problem. I had no expectation of that. It was not a, an item of food or a delicacy that I was expecting to experience or taste or have. It, it's, it was something completely out of the blue. I wasn't expecting that. So if expectation is synonymous with vexation, then clearly I had no vexation for that. So Bhante, how can you say that pleasure that I just experienced was a result of that? Yet another example could be you get a surprise gift. Maybe it's your birthday or some other occasion and one of your loved ones, maybe someone in the family, maybe a friend gives you a gift. And how does that make you feel? You feel really happy, you feel really pleased about that. But there was no expectation. Maybe you bump into an old friend in the market and you had no expectation to see them. It was not like you knew it was going to happen and you were waiting, counting down the days. So how do you explain that? A splendid question, don't you think? Well, what do you think is the answer then? How would you explain that? See, by now, I expect you to try and grapple these questions and try and come up with your own answers. Because I find that really interesting. Because if the principle is true, then whenever we try to explain something using that principle, we have to be able to come out with a fair and reasonable explanation, a just explanation. Because if you cannot, then one of two things has to be true. Either the principle is incorrect, it's flawed, or we haven't fully grasped the principle as yet. So how does it work? What do you think? I'm giving you a moment to think about it. Surprises? A surprise birthday party? Or a surprise party? A surprise send-off party? A surprise welcome party? A friend who you haven't seen for a long time? They arrive at at your home and go, surprise, and you're over the moon. So, if these are experiences of pleasure, which they most certainly are, how do you explain that through the principle that we have just discussed? That is, pleasure is an experience that we go through, we experience. It's a feeling that we experience when vexation is relieved in the mind. How do you explain that? Let me ask you a question to help you gather your thoughts around this. Have there never been occasions when a surprise wasn't a pleasant surprise? I know, now it's starting to make sense, isn't it? See, sometimes I don't even have to say a lot. All I have to do is ask the right question. So my teachers tell me, a good teacher doesn't always give the answers. My teacher tells me that a good teacher always knows the right question to ask. <laughs> so, have there never been occasions in your life where someone's given you a surprise and you didn't like that very much? 
It happens all the time, doesn't it? Say, for example, there's someone you really don't like. Um, maybe they don't know that. Who? Now it gets a bit difficult. You don't like them, but they don't know that. And they want to give you a surprise by turning up to your birthday. So, you didn't invite them, and that was deliberate, because you really didn't want them around. It's not the kind of person you want to hang around with. It's just not your type. So you didn't invite them. But they decided to invite themselves. And they turn up and go, surprise! And now you have to put up a false smile on your face and go, Oh, yeah! Nice to see you! Yeah! I Oh, yeah! I, I, was, I knew you would turn up! <laughs> Is that a pleasant surprise? So, are uh, surprises always pleasant? So, how is one surprise a pleasant experience and another a not-so-pleasant experience? How do you explain that? Let's go back to the example that was included in the question itself. You listen to some music, a song, and it sounds lovely. And you go, that's a beautiful song. Are you going to tell me that you've never listened to a song that you didn't think was lovely? That you listen to it and went, what's that? Do they even, is it even legal to make music like that? That's an earache. It's an ear sore. Why do they even make things like that? Who made that piece of music? It's so distasteful. I'm sure there must have been experiences like that in your life. So how is that possible then? So, you know, you see, it's not always that a surprise is a pleasant one. You may sometimes receive a gift from someone. And you weren't expecting a gift in the first place, but they've given you something and you really don't like it. Now, do you remember that feeling of trying to pretend that you like it so that you don't upset the other person? Right? You, 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 you put up this smile on your face. You know, it, it feels like you're trying to give birth or something. And it's just so, so difficult to, to, to do that. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the done thing. And you have to pretend that you, you really like them. You really, you really enjoy that experience. Maybe it's something, someone you don't, you don't like very much and they just turned up. And you have to pretend that you are so happy and delighted to see them. Think about this. So how is that possible? It could be even an item of food. Someone prepares something for you. You know, just something as simple as a cup of tea. Someone decides to entertain you and they decide to give you some, give you a drink. Maybe they've just made their first cup of tea and they're so excited about it. I've just made my first cup of tea and guess who I'm going to offer it to? <laughs> you go, yeah, me. So you, they offer the cup of tea to you and you now you have to Obviously, at least take a sip, because it's only the polite thing to do. And you take a sip of it, and it's the, let's just say, you've had better. Now, that's a surprise. You weren't expecting that. But it was not a pleasurable experience. It was a disappointment. So how does that work? Here's how it works. It's not always you are aware. Okay, so listen to these words carefully. Because to understand this, I need you to pay really close attention. It's not always that you are aware of all the things that you want. Now, let's take the example that this person had sent through as part of their question, listening to a piece of music, a song, okay? If someone were to ask you, what kind of music do you like? Most all of you will have an answer, won't you? Some might say I like classical music, 
others might say I like rock music, I like blues, I like piano, I like, you know, all sorts. You'll say what kind of music you like, what genre. And you might even say, you know, I like it when there's a, there's a piano or a, or a flute, the violin. You know, it's my favorite musical instrument. And if there's any music that has that, you know, I'm all ears. It's just, that's my cup of tea. You already have a, let's just say, a profile of the kind of music that you like. It's almost embedded you know, it's kind of always there, but it doesn't always surface. Because it depends on what you're focusing on. Let me explain what I mean by that. When someone takes you to, let's say, go and see some art in an, at an art gallery, now as you see the pictures hanging on the walls, you're constantly matching those images with the profiles of the kind of pictures that you like to see. So that could be color combinations. It could be artists that you fancy. It could be the, the type of scenery, whether it's a, a portraiture or maybe it's, a, it's, it's greenery. Maybe it's a landscape. Maybe it's animals or maybe it's flora and fauna. Whenever you're looking at this picture, when, when, you're, when you're looking at these pictures, you're constantly analyzing them by comparing them to this profile of what beautiful looks like. And this is very unique to each and every one of us. Your version of beauty will not be the same as the one standing next to you. It'll be unique. Of course, there will be some similarities, but there'll always be little nuances that'll be different. You might like lime green, the other person might like dark green. It can even be shades of colors. It can be patterns. It can be the shapes. It can be the background. Maybe whether it's 2D, 3D and so on. Perhaps it's the artist. Maybe it's the era to which that picture belongs. Maybe perhaps it's the, it's the perceived value that is attributed to that image, that picture, by society. Maybe it's, it, it, there's a group of artists or maybe there's a cohort of art lovers who have shared their opinions about that picture and you know, you're one of them. So a multitude of factors go into defining and shaping this profile. So, you know, it's not like you can sort of draw this profile out somewhere. It's not a material thing. It is immaterial, but in your mind, it's there. It's, as I said, embedded in your mind. And it can also be updated from time to time. Because when someone says, hey, look at that, that's a really beautiful picture, isn't it? And now you learn to appreciate. I think you'll be familiar with what I'm talking about here. It's a learned taste, you may have heard. So learned taste doesn't necessarily have to be with the tongue. It can be with the eye, the nose, the ear. You can learn to appreciate. Think about it. As a kid, perhaps there were... Maybe art was not your thing, but perhaps today you're an avid art collector. As a kid, you just didn't fancy them, you didn't like them. But then you were in that sort of crowd. You were thrown into 
a kind of society and you were introduced to people who appreciated art. And then you began to think like them because you were indoctrinated. So this is not some vile, vicious thing that someone is doing behind your back. Let's indoctrinate them. That's, that's not how it works. This is not brainwashing deliberately. But it is brainwashing at the end of the day. These ideas are instilled in your mind as we go through life. We are the sum product of the people that we associate with. So whatever they like, we end up liking. Whatever they don't like, generally we end up not liking. Think about the people you associate the most and you'll see that there are, there is a lot, there's a lot in common between you and them. If you change for some reason, then you will slowly begin to disassociate with the people that you are associating with right now unless they also change with you and then you will start to hang around a different kind of people. A different kind of person. Because you are the sum product or you are the average of the people that you most associate. This is psychologically so true and it's been tried and tested so many times. Anyone who studies psychology will be able to attest to this. But it is how the mind works. Because the people that we associate implant, instill these ideas into our minds. They could be right, they could be wrong. If we accept them, then we become them. So, when you're at an art gallery and you're looking at some, you're observing some paintings, at that moment in time, folks, your mind does not compare these images that your eyes bring to the mind, through the brain, to the mind. We talked about this, at least we scratched the surface on this last week. Your, your mind does not compare what you see with its profile, the embedded profile of what a melodious sound is like. Instead, it's going to compare it with a, the profile of what a beautiful picture looks like, a lovely image looks like. So it's always comparing that. So, I mean, otherwise, how could you explain when the mind goes, that's a beautiful picture? How is it that the mind is able to do that? What's the science behind it? To be able to say that something's beautiful means you already have an image of what beautiful looks like, right? To be able to say that something sounds lovely, you already have a, an, a profile of what something lovely sounds like in your mind. That's why when you say that sounds lovely, another person totally disagrees with you. What the? What are you talking about? That's rubbish, they might say. Whereas, the next person you bump into will go, that is just such a beautiful piece of music. Where'd you get it? Can you please show me where you found it? Can I have it, please? Can you share it with me? See, very different tastes. And you know about this. You know, people have different tastes. And these tastes, these, let's just say they are profiles, are very unique. By unique, I mean... You know, they are very different from one another. The reason I emphasize this point is, you may feel that there's a lot in common. So, for instance, if you go to the theater and, you know, it's a show by a certain artist, a, a performance by a certain artist, then, you know, you can expect that almost everyone in the audience will enjoy that because they knew what the performance was, they knew who it was from, and therefore they opted they deliberately, intentionally, volitionally turned up to enjoy it. So that will tell you, of course, that you know, they all enjoy the same thing. But you know, if you sum up all the different profiles of everything that everyone likes, or everything that a single individual likes, there will always be differences between that and someone else. Even if it's among twins, 
One person will like one thing, the other person will like something else. Never in my life have I ever found two people liking everything exactly the same way. There's always going to be at least minor differences. Now, it's not the biggest point here, the fact that they're all, we're all different. That's not what I'm trying to emphasize here. What I'm trying to emphasize here is there's a reason why some surprises you find pleasant experiences, whereas some surprises you don't. Whatever that surprise might be, whatever that experience might be, it does not have to be something that you were forewarned or pre-informed. So, you know, you do, it does not have to be that you are expecting that knowingly, but you are expecting it. How? Not knowingly, but unknowingly. Unbeknown to you, it was something you were expecting. At the art gallery, you weren't comparing what you saw with the profile of what a good song sounds like in your mind. However, it may be that at the art gallery, they start playing some music over the PA system. And now, you hear that song. Never heard it before. But at that moment, your mind is focused on that piece of music, on that sound. Because you see, and this is a, a point of fact to note, the mind can never focus on two things at the same time. People talk about multitasking, but it is not technically possible. The mind works at such a rapid pace that we feel that we are multitasking. It gives us the impression that we are multitasking. But that is only a hallucination. It is not. We do not multitask. The mind is not able to multitask. But the mind is able to switch between tasks at an unimaginably fast rate. So rapidly but it always focuses on just one thing. That could be a sight, a sound, a taste, smell, touch, or a mental thought. Something you're thinking about without using your five senses. A mental object. So one of these six objects, what are they again? Sight object, a sound object, a smell object, a taste object, a touch object, or a mental object. The mind is always focusing on one of these six things at any given time. Always. Whichever it is focusing on, it's always comparing that, that to the profile that it has already embedded within itself. Always scanning, always checking to see is this the kind of thing that brings me pleasure? In other words, the profile that is embedded is the profile of what the mind wants. So what the mind wants is always shaped. It is not fixed. It can be updated. It can be transformed. It can, I mean, completely be removed and replaced with something entirely different. It is quite transient. And this, this profile is shaped and influenced by the indoctrinations that the mind receives from the outside world. It is influenced by what other people say about things. That is why when you hang around people who appreciate a certain thing, a certain person, you will begin to like it or like that person. If you hang around people who enjoy a certain kind of food, then chances are you will begin to like that type of food. Think about it and, and, and ask yourself if this is not true. Why do you like the things you like? Why do you not like the things you don't like? And think about the people you hang around with. Your best friend, for instance. Why are they your best friend? 
Do they not like a lot of the same things that you like? And, you know, your friends, your family, your colleagues, the people who you really like to hang around with, do they not influence your likes and dislikes? This is, is this not what we see in peer groups? So when a bunch of people hang together, you know, we see the collective wanting in action. So we must then begin to understand. So again, you know, I'm sh I, I share this with you, expecting for you to be open-minded and try and see if this makes sense to you. We all have a mental profile of the kind of thing we like to see, we like to hear, we like to smell, we like to taste, we like to touch, and we like to think about. That's all embedded within our minds. It's not fixed and it's not cemented that it can never, sh never, never, never change. No, it's always very volatile. It's, it's always very changeable. It can be changed. It can be influenced. In fact, that is exactly what I'm doing right now. I'm influencing your notion of what happiness is like. When you watch a video, either on YouTube or on the TV, when you listen to a talk, when you listen to a presentation, you know, think about how you can become motivated for certain things. You know, someone who's not motivated to, to do something can go and listen to a speaker. Someone gives a talk about something and they, they, they're able to motivate you. How does that happen? Let's say you know someone who's quite lazy. You know, they're, they're not really interested in, in uh, making, you know, ha achieving anything out of their lives. And you get them and go and get them to go and sit down and listen to a motivational speaker. At the end of that talk, this guy's like, oh, I'm really pumped up. I just want to change my life completely. I don't want this mediocre life. I want to live an exciting and vibrant life, they might say. What happened? How did they change? See, if up until that point, the things that happened in their life, they were pretty happy to accept all the normal, the usual stuff, run-of-the-mill stuff. You know, they just hung around the same friends. But after listening to that talk, now they're, they've completely changed. Their idea, their notion, their image of what their life must be like from that point forward has changed. Why? Because it has been influenced. It has been shaped, transformed. So you see that this is entirely possible. Now, if that is possible, I want you to consider why that is not possible, why that would not be possible, where sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and other mental objects are concerned. So now, how do you explain? What would you offer as an answer to this person's question? One of our listeners would put through this question, Bhante, what about... When I listened to a song, I was not expecting. It was just completely out of the blue. But I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, it was lovely. It was magic on my ears. How do you explain that? Well, the explanation for that is, when you hear a sound, it does not have to be music, because the, eye, the ear doesn't hear music, the ear hears sounds. We'll talk about that in future episodes. Right? It's the mind that perceives music. The ear is only receptive to sound. Because ultimately, what, does the ear, what is the ear sensitive to? Music or sound? You know, there are the little hairs in your eardrum, in your, in the, on the inside of your ear. And your eardrum, your eardrum is not sensitive to music, but rather it vibrates to various frequencies. Frequencies of what? Music or sound? It is sound. And the cilia, 
that is on the, in the, in, on the inside of your ear, they begin to vibrate. And it's those vibrations that send an electric impulse through the auditory nerve to your brain. So these are all, this is the mechanism through which your ear works. So the ear does not distinguish, it does not discern music. It does not know what it's listening to. It just functions as a receptacle to sound. In other words, vibrations of air. So the ear is, it's not possible that the ear can listen to music. It's the mind that perceives the sounds as music. We'll talk about this more in future episodes and I will show you that this is the truth through various and numerous examples. That is why a, a piece of sound or some sound to you can just be sound and it can be music to somebody else. If, if, if someone were to speak to you in a language that you do not understand, how is it that you don't know where to break the words or to understand what they're saying, but the person standing next to you who understands that language will be able to tell you exactly what the other person said? All the, both you and the other person, they, you both heard sound. But one of you understood, perceived that as being language, words, sentences, grammar, syntax, semantics, whereas you did not. To you it was merely sound. So it's not the ear that made the difference. When you learn the language, did your ear change? Have you got a new ear now? No, it's the same ear. So what changed? Now you're able to better perceive them. It's sound you're listening to, not music or words and so on. So I think that's fairly easy to understand. Coming back to the point that we were discussing, when, you, when the mind focuses on sound or sight or smell or taste or touch or a mental object, at that moment, internally is loaded the profile that the mind wants to experience. It's like the mind is always an analyzer. It always has what good looks like internally. So internally it has an image of what good looks like. It has an impression of what good looks like, what good sounds like, what good smells like and tastes like and feels like. It always has that. That is why in different cultures people like different things. You know, a young child born into this world has absolutely no idea of the sort of cultures that the, the, kid, the child is born into. But over time, he or she picks up these things from the experiences that it has, from its parents, teachers, friends, the society that he lives in. What are the cultural values? What, are, what is good? What is bad? What, are, what is condoned? And what is condemned? These are things that the kid learns as he grows up. So in some cultures, for instance, it may be quite polite to shake hands, whereas in other cultures it might be considered quite rude. In some cultures it may be quite polite to give a peck on the cheek, whereas in other cultures that might be considered quite offensive. So which one's good, which one's bad? Why is it then that you are offended when someone does something, but maybe in another culture that is the dumb thing? Someone told me that in this, there's one culture where when you go for a meal at a friend's place, if you've enjoyed the meal, if you've really enjoyed your meal, to indicate that you've really had a good time, you must burp at the end of the meal. Like a full-on loud burp. Not just one, like a series of burps. That's when everyone at home, people who've 
worked really hard to prepare that meal for you, know that you've enjoyed your meal. Now, you will know that that is not acceptable in other cultures. If you were to do that in some other places, that would be considered quite rude. So when you listen, when you hear that sound, right, someone burps, and you hear that sound, and you know, you're, you're in, the, in, the, in, the, in the dining room, you're sat around the dinner table, and you hear someone burps, you were not expecting that. But internally, you had an Im image of what good sounds like. In that situation, you were expecting for them to do that. If that is what good sounds like to you. If that is not what good sounds like to you, then you would not expect that. And then, if that is what you hear, you don't find that tasteful. You find that distasteful and displeasurable. So, the takeaway from this discussion is there is really not a time where you can experience pleasure if there's no wanting. Even if it's a birthday gift. Sometimes it makes you feel happy, other times it makes you unhappy. You don't really enjoy that, the gift that you've just received. And then you're disappointed. I mean, you've seen, perhaps on YouTube, I remember as a layperson, I've seen plenty of videos, you know, young kids being pranked by their parents. Like, like there's the, the two brothers. Like the elder brother gets a new bike and the younger brother gets an old sock. <laughs> I, I'm sure you must have seen this, this, this kind of thing on, on, on the internet. So what is their response? None of them were expecting, or neither of them were expecting a gift. Let's say it wasn't the birthday. It was just, you know, a surprise. And, and they go, yay, we've got something. And the, 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 the elder brother goes, whoa, it's a, it's a bike. Lovely, fantastic, wonderful. And the young kid goes, <laughs> he breaks down in tears. Throws a hazy fit. How does that happen? Internally, there's always an expectation. The younger brother, in this example, enjoyed that gift because somewhere deep down inside, he wanted the bike. Try giving someone something they really don't like as a gift. Imagine something you really don't like. What if someone were to give you that as a, as a surprise gift? Would you enjoy that? You wouldn't. Now, you might ask, but then what about when they go surprise and that excites you? Well, yes, because people like surprises. People like surprises. Not what you got for the surprise, but the fact that you have been surprised. That people like. Because, you know, people think that if someone likes me, someone loves me, someone cares about me, you know, they will take the effort to give me a surprise. And it is considered, generally speaking, that giving a surprise is something that you do to show affection, love and care. I mean, of course, pleasant surprises. Sometimes a surprise can be quite unpleasant. But a pleasant surprise, if someone gives you a surprise party, a surprise gift, someone turns up, you know, someone you really, really like hanging around with, I, they do that because they know that that makes you feel happy. So because there are two things at play here. One, the surprise itself. And two, what you got for the surprise. Or what you got as a surprise. These are two very different things. So sometimes even if you are disappointed about what you got, the fact that you have been surprised in itself can be a pleasant experience because... It is generally considered that you only give a surprise to someone you like. So the fact that you have been given a surprise is a display, a demonstration of love, care and affection. And that's always something people like. 
So again, it's something people want. So you see, no matter which way you look at this, you can only be pleased. You can only be happy. You can only experience pleasure. By happy, of course, I mean the conditional happiness here, right? You can only be made conditionally happy. You can only experience pleasure by relieving from vexation. That vexation may not always surface. It could be like embers under the coal. But given the opportunity, when whatever that object comes into focus, then everything good to do with that particular channel surfaces. So let me again explain what I mean by that. If it's a sight that has, simp that has just been presented to you, then what good sight looks like surfaces in your mind. It does, not, it, you know, it does not pop out of the body or anything like that. It surfaces in your mind. That is how you know that what you've seen is good. That's how you know this. I mean, try showing something to a robot. A computer, scan something. Is, is a computer going to say, that's a good one? Oh, what's that? That's ugly? No. Why? Because there is no internal impression of what that needs to look like. Because a computer does not want anything. However, you could program it to scan and check whether something is something else. Now, you feed information into the computer and say, check whether this is that. And then the computer will give you a response. Passed, failed, failed, passed, and so on. So this is what happens in, the, in your mind. We all have a mental impression, a mental image of what we like to see, what we like to hear, what we like to smell, what we like to taste, what we like to touch, and what we like to think about. That is why when you begin to start thinking about something you don't like, you just want to get it out of your head. But it could be a pleasurable idea, thought to somebody else. Why? Because this mental profile, this internal mental profiles are unique. They're very different from one another. Why is that so? It is simply because that is the sum product of all of the influences that you've had. All of the indoctrinations, all of the instilling, all that instilling that you've had from your childhood, shaped at numerous points in your life, even at this very moment, folks, you're being influenced. Your mental impressions, your mental profiles are being influenced even at this very moment. I am shaping them through these words that I share with you. When you watch TV, your mental impressions, your mental profiles of what good looks like, what good sounds like, what good smells and tastes like are being influenced. So, you know, really, quite literally, you're always being influenced. Except maybe besides when you're asleep. At that point, you can't be influenced. But if you've got your eyes and ears open, these are the two main doors of influence, your eyes and your ears. Because through your eyes, you can be fed information. Through your ears, you can be fed information. New information. New information. New ways of interpreting the world can be fed through your eyes and ears. You can be indoctrinated through your eyes and through your ears. Provided you have your eyes and ears open and they're receiving data from the outside world, chances are you're being influenced. That's not necessarily a bad thing. So you shouldn't now try and keep your eyes and ears closed all the time and go and live inside a deep, dark cave. That is not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is, this is how the mind works. And provided you're receiving the right kind of influence, it's going to do a great deal of good for you, which I hope is what's happening right now. Your teachers, your parents, a good friend, a noble friend, they can influence you in the right way. So these influence are, influences are positive, and they are welcome. But equally, negative influences keep coming your way. 
they can be destructive. They can completely destroy one's world, one's life. This is why all great teachers, including the Buddha, have always recommended associating the right kind of people. Noble companionship, noble association, they have all recommended. Ignoble companionship, hanging around with the wrong kind of people, they have always condemned and admonished. So, that's a long answer to that question, but I, but I hope it has been quite a comprehensive answer. We've talked about lots of different things as we attempted to gather up sufficient material to respond to that question from one of our listeners. It was a really good question, I must add. A very pertinent question. And a very thought-out question. A very intelligent question. Why is it that when you experience something unexpected, you can still experience pleasure? So what is the answer? It is never unexpected. It is always expected. You just don't know that it's expected. Why? Because your focus is something else. As you're watching TV at home, let's say your mother comes home and she's brought a gift for you. You weren't expecting that. You're busy watching TV. But the moment you see that, your mother's walked in, she's got a gift for you. Is that not something you like? I mean, do you generally dislike your mother giving you something? No. You like it. And the moment you see that, you scan it internally. And this happens so fast, at incredible rates. No processor is ever going to be able to, to match that or beat that. It happens at, at an incredibly fast rate. Many millions, if not billions, of cycles per second of processing power in the mind. It does this analysis in the flash of a second. So the moment you see mother and something in the hand and it looks like a gift, right, that scans your mental profile of what, what you like for your mother to do for you. You like your mother to give you a gift, don't you? You like anyone to give you a gift, don't you? Right? I mean, you always like that. Let's say mother hasn't brought a gift for you and just someone comes and asks you, hey, if your mother were to, were to bring you a gift, would you like that? What would you say? Of course you're going to say yes. So you have a mental image of what good likes, looks like. And when that really manifests itself in the real world, then it's that comparison that happens instantly. Instantly. And as a result of that, you are relieved of that vexation. That vexation was always there. It just didn't surface. Because there was no reason for it to surface. Why? Because your mind was being fed with something else. Whatever the mind was busy with, it was the vexations to do with that that were being surfaced and being relieved from vexation. So while you're eating something, your mind is constantly comparing what taste it receives and what the food feels and tastes like with the mental profile of what good tastes and feels and smells like. So immediately if someone plays a piece of music, now the next moment the mind listens, the mind hears that sound and it perceives that it's music. At that moment, as I said, the mind can never interpret two things at the same time. It can only work on one thing. The moment the mind hears that, it kind of loads the profile of what good sounds like. And then immediately there's a match. If there's a match, then you experience pleasure. If there's no match, then it's displeasure. You don't like it. So even when you're listening to a piece of music, ask yourself, you like that because you like that sort of music. That's why, isn't it? There will always be types of music that you don't like to listen to, won't there? And if you were to listen to that type of music, it could be a brand new piece of music, you're still not going to enjoy it. That's why I said, not all surprises are pleasant. 
Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant. How do you explain that? In just the way we did. Now, I wanted to continue our conversation about how this wanting comes into being, but I think it was quite useful for us to discuss this question that had come through and to come up with some answers to explain how that works. Because all in all, it has really helped us to further our understanding and comprehension of this idea, this, this, this phenomenon of wanting and how it haunts the mind and how pleasure is always, always, always relief from vexation. With that, let's conclude for today. Looking forward to speaking to you next week as we'll continue the, through the remainder of our discussion. But before we conclude, let's take a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired, to be grateful and thankful to all, each and every one of those people who have helped us to get thus far and who have helped us to continue our journey forward as we take these steps forward to achieving our ultimate happiness. All right, so first and foremost then, let us take a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting Pirit, listening to the Dhamma and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. Let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching and with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasikas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer these merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha, present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all chapters, who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries, who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine, and let us also transfer these merits to our teachers and all other monks resident at this monastery, as well as all the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them, and may to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plane, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane, and may to the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees and friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery and to those of you who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. May to the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, Grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who have helped us and supported us, assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to the devas, brahman spirits and demons, and primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambuddhasasana. Let us also transfer these merits to our guardian deities who keep watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may through the power of these merits they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us, and to all who have been our families and friends and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in Sansara, and those who have helped and supported us and assisted us in every way, shape or form they could. Let us also transfer merits to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nations, and may all who have lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe rejoice in the merits that we have acquired today. Let us also transfer merits to all those who have lost their lives to natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides and pandemics including the most recent and prevailing one, Reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey in Sansara. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to them and may to the power of these merits if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain 
May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us all resolve that may through the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may through the power of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become an arahaton muhanse, an arahat mehinin muhanse in this very life and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all.